Hey, this is Jeff Pilson, and you are listening to Focus on Metal. Enjoy. Hey, Metalheads, Scott Thompson here, bringing you yet another episode of Focus on Metal. Holy crap, was last week's show just an insane duo of guests? I mean, who could ask for more than that? Marty Friedman and Joe Satriani, all on one show. I know me as a guitar player, I was definitely psyched about that one. Of course, topping it all off, track of the week with Maxwell Carlyle. So just a whole six-string orgy of guitar goodness. Gotta love that stuff. And if you haven't picked up Marty's new CD, Inferno, do yourself a favor, too. Go out and get that puppy. You can go right to Prosthetic Records to get it, or you can get it on Amazon. They cut a couple different packages. They got it in vinyl. They get it as a digipack. You get it at Prosthetic. You can also order it with the, uh, with the long-sleeve Inferno t-shirt as well. So good stuff. You might even get lucky when you order it at Prosthetic to actually even get a signed postcard. Can't guarantee they still have any more left, but hey, why not? It's great shipping prices on there and good stuff. So like I said, do yourself a favor. Go up and get Inferno by Marty Friedman. Just killer, killer stuff. And of course, if you're like Joe Satriani, then you want to go out and get that brand new book, Strange Beautiful Music. And also, of course, they got all the new remastered stuff. And I know I will be getting my order in for the Chrome Dome just to bask in the 96 kilohertz high def glory of all the Satriani tracks. So this week, got a pretty kicking show. I know a lot of listeners do write in. They talk about how much they love when we do shows with producers. So our shows with Bo Hill and Mike Frazier, they get a lot of feedback. And once again, Richie has pulled another one out got us in contact with Keith Olson, sat down a while back, had a great discussion with Keith. So it's actually like April we did this. You'll you'll know when you listen to the interview. You're a little backed up. You know, when you get Marty Freeman or Joe calls in, you kind of push them up a little earlier in the batting order, you know? So definitely Keith's got a lot to talk about. Guy's been doing this stuff for a long time. So you know what that means. This one is going to be a long one. Lots of talking with Keith. And looking at it and looking at how much audio we had, I was kind of hemming and hawing about whether or not we were going to do our traditional opening, our old friend track of the week. And it was back and forth. And ultimately... You know, I looked at some of the great stuff I've gotten from the labels lately, and there's one really good one. And I said, oh, crap, you know, I just can't let this go another week. So once again, another week, track of the week wins out, even though it's going to be a long audio with Keith Olsen. We're still doing it. Track of the week. Germany's own Metal Inquisitor, who is who we have on tap this week for Track of the Week. That's right, Metal Inquisitor. has been around for a long time. These guys, they formed in 1997, and of course, they put out a single called Seven Inches for the Seven Attack. Real kind of Nawabum kind of sound and stuff. So basically, you know, like around 2000, there was the original drummer, Witchhammer. He left the band, and so, uh, you know, they kind of reformed a little bit. They had Havoc come in on drums. So those guys, you know, they kind of got together, and in 2002, they put out their first full-length called The Apparition. That was on Iron Glory Records. They went out and they did the apparition tour 2002 2003 long tour as well and of course in 2004 they did a whole bunch of different german festivals they did the rock hard did keep it true and kind of had some slow building popularity 
but I guess it wasn't good enough for Iron Glory. They knocked that deal right out. Spring of 2005, they signed with Hellion Records. They put out Doomsday for the Heretic. A lot of you guys might have heard of that one. That one came out just at the tail end of 2005. Got some good reviews on that one. And uh, Rock Hard Magazine over in Germany, they were all over that one. So they did that. 2006, they had some shakeup with the band members with uh, bass player leaving and stuff like that, different things, and kind of didn't do really a lot. And uh, then in, in 2010, they did their third album called Unconditional Absolution. And that was with the actually with the bassist Kronos that came back on bass just to do that. And uh, yeah, Rock Hard again. They were all over that thing in uh, their December issue. And again, they did the Rock Hard Festival. They did Headbangers Open Air. They did the Bang the Head Festival. Just a whole bunch of stuff. So that's the last thing they did was in 2010. So out 2014, put out their fourth album. It's called Ultima Ratio Regis. Good stuff. This time they are on the legendary Massacre Records. And as I had said, this stuff is just, it's got that real classic old school metal sound. A lot of people do kind of compare it a lot to Nuwabam stuff, maybe a little mix of Nuwabam and U.S. metal. And uh, stuff was actually uh, all mixed and mastered by Olaf Wickstrand from Enforcer. So good heavy metal pedigree happening here. And uh, so I'll play you a track off the new album. If you're digging it, definitely you can head up to Massacre and pick this one up for yourself. As I said, it's called Ultima Ratio Regis. And if you act soon, you might even get one of the limited edition gatefold vinyl LPs. Only 500 copies of that one. So definitely cool stuff there. And of course, if you want, you can hook up with these guys on Facebook, on Twitter. Just like I said, good stuff. I think you're going to like this one. You know, if you're listening to Focus on Metal because of a lot of the stuff that we like, then I think you guys are going to like this one. And I'm going to play you off of the album a track called Call the Banners. Pick this one because I think that out of all of them, it seems to represent everything they do on this album. It's got some of, some of the Maiden stuff on there. It's got some Saxons, got U.S. Touches, little Riot in there. It seems to just have the whole pedigree all in one song. So here it is from Metal Inquisitor off their brand new one on Massacre called Ultima Ratio Regis. It's Call the Banners. <laughs>
guys like that one. Like I said, Metal Inquisitor, brand new album, Ultima, Ratio Regis on Massacre. Go pick that one up. So as I had said on the front end of this episode, our guest this week is Keith Olson, legendary producer. And of course, a lot of people now know Keith because of the Sound City documentary that Dave Grohl did. And now people know his face and understand what he did. But guy's been around producing bands since 1975 pretty amazing and he has done a ton of stuff you know obviously he's done Ozzy with No Rest for the Wicked and he's done all the White Snake stuff and he did some Scorpion stuff did Europe which I'm surprised in the interview that Richie didn't ask him a single question about Europe because Europe is definitely one of those bands that's long been on Richie's radar did Bad Company so I'm surprised I didn't ask him about Bad Co but this guy has worked with so many guys legendary producer would have loved to have been in half the sessions this guy was in and just a killer guy to talk to. And of course, if you want to find out more about him, you can also get up to his website. It's KeithOlsonProductions.com. And that's Olson in, as in O-L-S-E-N. You know, what else can I say about the guy? He's a legendary, legendary producer. That's probably one of the reasons that Richie was so hell-bent to have him on the show. And when you think of how long this guy's been in and you listen to the interview, it's amazing the amount of stuff that this guy does remember. Different details about mics and everything, placements, incredible stuff. And of course, he even jokes about, you know, the fact that, you know, sometimes you don't remember half of what goes on. And uh, it just, I don't know, just listening back, it's just amazing to be able to talk to this guy and hear a lot of the stuff. And it's probably one of the coolest things when we do get to talk to some of these producers is the stuff that they were involved in and just some of the cool stuff you end up talking to them about. Always an honor to have these guys on. But uh, hey, you know what? You hear from me every damn week. Why don't we just dive in and talk to the one and only Keith Olson. How are you doing? We're doing great. Uh, we're here in the Boston area, just outside okay. of Boston. So, uh, Richie, who's we? Me and my co-host, Scott. Hi, Scott. How are you doing? Hey, Keith. How are we doing? All right. So, uh, are you recording this now? I am, yes. Okay. You know what day this is? Well, it's April 7th. That's right. 27 years ago today, White Snake, 80, uh, White Snake album was released. Wow. Nice. Today, 20. Seven years ago, uh, <laughs> Coverdale and I uh, uh, just emailed back and forth, saying, "Wow, can you believe it, man?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that album did pretty well. <laughs> yeah, pretty well. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and the thing was is that uh, we knew we had some singles on it, but we wanted it to be a rock and roll album, and and, and so we, uh, you know, Geffen and John Kladner decided to release Still the, Still the Night First, which was the absolute perfect single to put out first. You know, because it went out to uh, FM radio, and it did exactly what we wanted it to do. It exposed rock radio, AOR radio, to, uh, to the record in the best possible light. And then, and then, the, then it came, came the singles, you know, the... You know, here I go again, and all the rest of them. Yeah, it was it was a very long song though to release as a single. It was like seven minutes long. That was the reason he released it because of uh, it was what was it six minutes and twenty seven seconds or six twenty eight something like that. Yeah. They wanted it to be released as a single to show off the album. Yeah. yeah. The only place where it could get any traction was that AOR rock radio. And yeah. so, uh, you know, and I can't believe it. You know, it actually hit the charts. Being said, nearly seven minutes long. 
you know, we've even had a show where we actually look back and we were looking at that year. And in particular, when we looked at, at the that album, one of the unique benchmarks of it was that up until then, really, no album sonically sounded like that. So many albums sounded like that sonically afterwards. But that, yeah. I think, really introduced that FM radio audience with something that was sonically just so tailored to the way that FM radio sounded, too. It just it cha- it was a real game changer. Well, you know, the, uh, the guitars on that record um, were done really well. Mm-hmm. Was uh, John Sykes for the most part, it, uh, and uh, then there were then there was some uh, Adrian Vandenberg, and then uh, and even uh, even Dan Hoff played on a couple of things. So it's it's just one of those, you know, the guitars were so perfectly layered, and uh, and it it took a long time. Uh, and the album took a long time to mix because it was uh, a, a lot of ideas on the tape. And we uh, we we uh, we recorded it was recorded analog, and uh, and then we uh, transferred it to digital and mixed from digital uh, onto the the two track. But it was uh, it was a, a, a long and winding road. Mixing that record. One of the things I liked about it too is at that point I was playing bass, and so that song also has this, you know, within that six plus minute thing is there's actually some step out for the bass in there as well. And so, for, so for me playing in a cover band at that point, it was like, oh, good, I get my little spotlight piece in there. So, so you got to play. You got it. Yeah, you even if you wanted to fancy it, you could do like the the, the double stop two finger thing on it too. So kind of do yeah. a chordal things, yeah. Well, then you would have played all the cello parts. <laughs> <laughs> I figure you probably added that just for your own gratification, being a bass player yourself. Uh, actually, it was keyboard player was uh, Don Harry. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I'm 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 sorry if I if I go brain dead because uh, you know there's been hundreds of albums. You know, five hundred and some odd albums I've worked on. Wow! Yeah, I tell you, that's that is just just an immense body of work. You know, I just can't even imagine having done that many. And and you know, between producing and mixing and engineering and all of it, that's just huge. Well, you know, I, I used to think life was short, death is long. But you know, and if, when I start looking back, God, <laughs> life is long. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if you sit in the studio day after day after day, and so. Uh, but it's uh, uh, yeah, no, it, it was what a way to make a living. I'll tell you, I had, I had a smile on my face an awful lot of the time. Yeah, it, it was stunning. I mean, uh, you know, from from White State working with Ozzy and and, uh, and Zach's first record uh, with Ozzy. You know, God, to see that guy be so on Zach be so thrilled because he's playing in the his hero's band. He's now a member of his hero's band. He's playing in Ozzy's band, and you know, I ro- I rolled the tape, and all of a sudden, this grin went from ear to ear. <laughs> you know, just playing these amazing parts 
and it was stunning. It was really stunning. Zach would have been, what, 19, 20 years old then? He, would have, he was really young when he played he with Ozzy. He was a kid. Yeah. And so here I was, and I'm seeing this kid, really, this kid just come alive. And the sound that was coming out of him came alive, and the tracks came alive, and it was... And it all reflected his energy, and, and it was, you know, you, you kind of know uh, when you get these guys in the studio. Like, when I go back, you know, all the way to the 70s when, you know, when I had, you know, Lindsay, and, uh, Lindsay Buckingham and Waddy Wachtel in the studio. My God, those guys are great. I mean, it just doesn't get, uh, you know, playing and expertise. And then, you know, the other, you know, throughout the years, you know, it was, that was the thing. It's all about, you know, producing records and getting great sounds and all this stuff. You know, 99% of it's who you call to play the part. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a great guitar player makes you as a producer and you as an engineer look really, really good. <laughs> yeah. And, and when you get someone like Zach, too, I mean, here's somebody that's got kind of like a really pure tone because it's really, you know, Les Paul and a Marshall and not some, you know, refrigerator size rack or anything like that. So it's it's just this, you know, it's just hymns. I think that makes your job that much easier when it's so pure like that. Well, he is uh, he was so good and had so much technique going for him, hmm. even at 19 or 20 however old he was at the time. Uh, I think uh, I had, see, I had a, a, a setup at Goodnight LA. I had a, uh, Jim Marshall built me a couple of amps. Mm. Uh, and I carried them back from England. And these amps were just tweaky good. They were just straight old 100-watt Marshall heads. And these cabinets were, I had two EVML uh, 12-inch uh, electro voice speakers in an open back, really uh, heavy cabinet mm. that Jim Marshall made. And these, these things sounded so good. And so I just said, hey, Zach, just plug in. Listen to this. And he just plugged it in, turned it up all the way and he just started chunking away and it was just stunning and he was and he knew it was stunning because it was everything that he played uh that you know that emotional feedback that not emotional but emotional feedback of of when you hit a string and you hear the sound and the sound makes the string sing even Mm, more yeah and you know a player knows that and he plays to that technique and it's and when it's happening, real, and right there in the room without going through all the refrigerator-sized rack of, of junk, it's, it's so pure, and it's so cool. Wow. It's amazing, too, you know, to think that he was getting that tight a sound out of an open-back cab as well, which usually people start to go to to get a little bit more looseness as opposed to, like, you know, a nice, like, 1960 A or B that kind of gives you that tight focus sound. So that's that's pretty cool to know that he was using that. No, well, that's, uh, you know, the EBMLs uh, uh, speakers instead of the Celestians. Hmm. For, for you tech heads out there, 
<laughs> you know, it's uh, uh, those those speakers were stunningly good, mm. and they were really tight, and so you could do it in an uh, open back cabinet, and and they just and they sounded great. Yeah. Uh, and then I did mic them. I shavered the mics and and mic them very close with. Uh, Believe it or not, it was a, a fifth Sure 57 and an AKG 451. Okay. There you go. Wow. <laughs> Boy, that, that took me back a few years. <laughs> yeah. I, I got to ask you, Keith, um, that album you did with Ozzy, uh, I think Geezer Butler played bass on it. Now, as far as I know, you're a bass player yourself, so what makes Geezer a, 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 like one of the most recognizable bass players out there in rock music? Well, it was... It, he, his style, his style was was, you know, it, he has kind of his own style. Just the the choice of notes and the way he plays. Uh, you know, on on most of the songs of use, I now remember that was what nineteen eighty eighty eight, I think eight, right? Yeah. So, give me a break. Trying <laughs> <laughs> to remember, uh, and. When when we cut when we cut the tracks, he was uh, uh, I think he was playing a lot with his fingers. Mm, yeah, I think uh, you know I can't I can't be sure because he was standing kind of around you know in my studio. There's the drums were always on the right, and I had a really clear view of the drums and everybody else kind of spread around, and I couldn't see. Exactly, because the the face of him, because everybody was facing the drums. Yeah, but that, I mean that is typical geezer to, to be picking with his his index finger and and uh, his middle finger. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, that. So, but that's uh, it, he had a style, that, and that was that style. Now, you know, and like on White Snake '87, um, God, uh, I'm trying to remember who was the bass player. Um, well, Neil Murray. That's right, Neil Murray. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Neil Murray, and then uh, and because Rudy did the tour. Right. That's, that's right. Yep. Tour. Uh, yeah, it's uh, you know he he plays he played really good, and too, and it was uh, and then uh, when Rudy came on and on board, it it was uh, uh, he had he had a much tighter sound. And he could run around stage really well and still, still make all the notes, you know. Yeah. Now that we're, we're talking about White Snake again, Keith, um, did you remix the Slided In uh, album for the U.S. market? Yeah, uh, you betcha. Yeah. What 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 exactly did you do to make like? What's the difference between the U.S. version and the English version? Like, what did they tell you to do to make it sound more American? Uh, actually, uh, John Kalander, uh Brought me the uh, brought me the record and he just said, "I want this, I want your sound on it." So I just put it on. I didn't even think about it, other than just doing a mix. Okay. And that was my first meeting with David, and we became really good friends really fast. Mm -hmm. It's been uh, it's been a long time now that we've been friends, and you know I. When I was with him two years ago, when here I go again with the 25th anniversary of that song uh, going uh, hitting number one or going gold, I can't remember what it was, but it was uh, 
uh, I was with him in Tahoe, so it was really cool. Anyway, are you ready for this? Are you ready for this? Are you ready for this? You mentioned with the studio with being, you know, Goodnight L.A. And of course, a lot of people now with Dave Grohl's documentary kind of have a, a new appreciation for, you know, what you did going from Sound City and opening up that studio and kind of the, the way you started to revolutionize a lot of the things that were done. Do you get a lot of people asking you about that now more than they did before? It's amazing. I had about 200 friends on Facebook. Now there's like thousands. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's like, you know, uh, I've always been open to talk about uh, uh, that time at, at Town City and that time at Goodnight LA yeah. because it's been, um, there was, it was probably one of the most creative periods of time in Los Angeles hmm. uh, because the, 
you know, you had the, the East Coast scene and the West Coast scene, and the West Coast scene was divided between San Francisco uh, in the 60s, and then it all went to L.A. in the late, mid-70s on. Yeah. It was, mm-hmm. it was L.A., L.A., L.A. And it was, uh, and there was a, the studio scene, the musicians, the, the writers, it was everything. It was, people used to get together just to play. Um, uh, I remember when, uh, one time when David Foster had a birthday and a bunch of us said, hey, you know, look at all the musicians that are here. And it was, uh, you know, Keltner and, and, and yeah, uh, Waddy and, and this other guy and, and David, of course. So there were all these musicians and we said, wow, we should be cutting a track. And they all looked at me and said, Keith, let's go out to Sound City. And it's like 11 o'clock at night and we're all driving out to Sound City because we wanted to just cut something. Yeah. Because yeah. we were all there. It was, you know, and so, uh, so uh, you know, with Leland and, and Sklar and all, I mean, these, we used to just get together to cut. I mean, to record, to to put something down on tape that we could all go ooh ah about, and it was a really creative time, uh, and that's what and you know, Sound City was really pretty loose as far as everything going on around there. It made enough money to keep the doors open, but it never made enough money to really keep up with all the uh, you know changes and this that, and the other thing. Thank God they had that wonderful old neat console that just kept on going for 25 years you know oh, yeah. it was it went on forever and and now it's still going on in, at Dave Roll's place and you know it's uh, and it looks really good in his studio too <laughs> let me tell you yeah, I'm, I'm very jealous about that. It's and I mean those things sound amazing, and, and you know Rupert built those things like a tank too. So well, it's it's all about transformers and class A circuitry. Yeah, instead of uh, ICs and uh, transformerless designs and stuff like that, it's uh, it was really so well built if you just you know and it was it didn't change as the caps uh, started to age hmm. this didn't change it just started you know because there's so many transformers that hey even though there was leakage going through the caps for you techies out there it didn't change the sound because the the transformer was blocking the dc so it was only the only thing that was getting out of it was ac so it was uh it was really good really cool it, just sounded great forever, and then. Uh, but remember, it it only had it didn't have any recall, didn't have any reset. It had meek and fader automation. Mm. Really, a uh, uh, pretty old hat, but at least it had some fader automation, and that was added in. Uh, that what it didn't come that way. Yeah, and then but yet it had uh, thirty three six zero nine compressors. Uh, that uh, those that's the stereo version of it. They had this that console had six of the mono versions of it that you could link together, uh, and it was just I mean oh my god it just sounded so good. And the very first thing that I recorded 
uh, on that console. The first session ever on that console was Buckingham Nicks crying in the night. If you anybody's ever tracked down an old copy of uh, the Buckingham Nicks album, there it is. I wish that they would put it out on CD, but you know that's you know only 35 years too late and <laughs> put out on CD. But that first track, uh, crying in the night. God, it sounds great. Just amazing. I, I heard a version. I, I heard a. I heard a. You know, a, somebody uh, took a. You know, I had Dave Donnelly back. Oh, I don't know, 15 years ago, may, uh, do a remaster from the from a safety copy of that album. But that was 15 years ago. It sounded <laughs> amazing. You know, and he was going, "Wow, when did you do this?" Gabe Knight said, "1970." Seventy-three, <laughs> and he's like, "God, you're old." No. <laughs> but uh, it's it's a it's a really, you know, that that console, that room, and that was the start of the vibe at, at Sound City was when that console first got put in, and then shortly thereafterwards, I mean, we uh, uh, Jimmy Rabbit and, and Waylon Jennings and. and uh, and then, uh, God, uh, and then the uh, Aretha Franklin, uh, Amazing Grace album, and then along comes uh, Buckingham Nicks and that album, and then uh, and from Fleetwood to Grateful Dead for me. Wow, that was a transition. <laughs> I stumbled right into that one, I'll tell you. Yeah, I, I know, Keith, you did the... Um the Farner album there, Double Vision. Yeah. Um, now, are you the type of producer that likes to get involved with arranging the songs as well? Because at the time, I, I know that Mick Jones had, the, you know, he nearly had it on the on the liner notes that he was the musical director of the band. So, oh, yes. He's, he's the leader of the band. Yeah. So uh, Mick Jones is now, today, and was back then, the leader of the band. He and Bud Prager put the band together. Uh, the uh, as far as uh, arrangements, yeah, uh, I stuck my toe in there a lot. I stuck my nose in. Um, for instance, uh, I don't know if you know that I was in the band The Music Machine mm -hmm. back in the 60s, and there was a, a song called The People in Me. And the bass line is dun 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 Listen to the low guitar part bass line in Blue Morning Blue Day. Yeah. Hey man, there's only 12 notes. Okay, so I plagiarized myself. Shoot me. Yeah, I was, I was looking at your discography and I'm thinking, I have to ask him about this album and that album and this album. And, you know, we've touched on a couple of them already. So, um, like, well, let's talk, let's talk about Foreigner for a second. Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Lou Graham, a world class singer, period. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He is, uh, you know, he is so good. He would walk out there. He's never had any training or anything like that. No vocal lessons or anything. He just gets out there and bears his soul, and it's so good. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't realize how good he is 
when I did his I did a solo record with him, Shadow King. Oh, I, I, I was I was going to ask you about that. I love that album. I love that album. That song uh, called Russia. Yeah, the, the last track, the acoustic one. That track, yeah. That was a reference vocal. <laughs> a vocal. Wow. That's how good he is. <laughs> wow. Yeah, he's he's definitely. Well, yeah, he's definitely up there in uh, you know that they call the genre AOR. He's up there as one yeah. of the best. Him, Steve Perry. He's up there with those, you know. Yeah, and you know, there's. Uh, I was lucky enough to be able to record a lot of world class singers, uh, and it makes the job of producer really easy and really hard at the same time because <laughs> what do you say to him? Wow. Uh, that wasn't very good. Do it again. <laughs> In fact, you can never say that uh, because but you want to have, uh, like, for instance, Ann Wilson. There you go. Yeah. What are you going to say after she does a track? She sings stuff so well that you fall over in the control room as she's singing because you can't believe what's coming out of the speakers and then you want to get another take from her <laughs> so you know you find unique ways of getting them to just do another take yeah I saw Hart a couple of years ago and she still sounds incredible oh, isn't she amazing oh, I mean unbelievable. the day she sounds so good every single time she sings it's like that uh, you know, totally bearing your soul and it's just great I mean See, like Ann Wilson, Pat Benatar, uh, uh, Lou Graham, uh, David Coverdale. Uh, I mean, God, those are <laughs> those are all world class singers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, and they're and I can put them all in the same basket. I mean, you know, because Benatar, gosh, a world class singer. Yeah. You know, I mean, where she sings, you know. Uh, you know, she would sing us a, a track, and and it would be so good. You know, she could maybe do it different. She's not going to do it any better. <laughs> it's going to be different, but it's going to be really good too. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, same thing with with Anne. The same thing with Aretha. When I got to do amazing work on Amazing Grace, uh, same thing. It's. Yeah, she could do it different, but holy crap. It's going to be great, period. You know, and so that's why I said, you know, world-class singers make your job really hard and really easy at the same time because you know that you aren't going to make any mistakes by having the wrong vocal. It's just going to be a little different. Do you think that's probably one of the, the hardest things with production? I, I know that I occasionally will produce a band or do a demo for somebody or something like that and i've always felt like that's one of the hardest things for me is when somebody sings or plays something that is just you you know you can never even play that well and you're just agog at what they just did but somewhere deep inside you're like oh crap i gotta tell them that it's just not quite right and i know that's always been like one of the hardest things for me is is to be able to relay that but at the same time keep the rapport, keep the energy up, and figure a way to get an, a better take? Well, you know, there's, uh, if you have something really special, uh, at least you've got it today, if you're rolling anything, it's kind of being recorded. Hard disk recording is hard disk recording. Yep. Really makes it easy. 
because you, you know, you're never really out of tracks. Exactly. <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, you can playlist anything. Uh, and I, I don't know, you know, I, I'm really active still, you know, I'm, I'm working on projects all the time. And <clears throat> it's just, you know, bedside manner is, is probably uh, 25% hmm. of record production. It's knowing how to get, you know, okay, with David Coverdale. All right, I hope he doesn't hear this. <laughs> <laughs> Never let him know that on Still of the Night, the very first song we sang on the White Snake 87 album, he came in to sing. I said, I, we had got all the tracks finally just perfect, ready for him to sing. Everything was in tune and played well and in time, so he could just go out there and wail. So I put three mics out in the room, and I said, so David, no pressure. I want to just find out what mic is really going to be the right mic for you. And I said, so can you sing the song three times? He said, sure. So bang. Ran the track, he recorded it, panting like crazy. Give me a second at the end of it. And I said, okay, you tell me when. He said, okay, I'm ready. Okay, we'll try to get the next mic. I had all three mics in the exact same place. I never changed mic because I knew which mic was my go-to mic. And I had him sing it two more times, trying, quote, where he thinks, we're just trying out mics. And at the end of the third take, I said, okay, David, thanks. Let me cop this together. He says, what? <laughs> and I said, go rest. Just go for it. And uh, that was it. Could you hold on one second? Yep. Mm -hmm. Hi, this is Phil Susan, and you are listening to Focus on Metal.
so with with David, you know, I told him that, you know, the way to get him to sing it three times and bear is all is that I was finding out what mic was really right for him. Quote, but I didn't. I only had one mic and I used my go-to mic and that was it. And it was the same mic I've used on every artist since 1979. <laughs> I, I had bought an AKG 414 that I loved, and I and I started using it on, uh, oh, geez. Uh, I started using it right after I did uh, the Fleetwood Mac album, and that's when I, and then when, I'm, when I went over to Goodnight LA, I had to buy one, so I bought one instead of using the, uh, the one from uh, Sound City, and I and I got a pair of them, and I found one that sounded exactly like the one from Sound City, and that was the one I used. Mm. Used forever. Wow. While we're talking about uh, singers, Keith, um, I want to ask you about doing the the Kingdom Come album in your face because uh-huh. Lenny Wolf, of course, when they brought out their first album, they got hammered in the media for sounding so much like uh, Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Um, when, when you when they came along to you to do that record, did they deliberately try and get away from that sound, um, or was, did it just happen that way that they were just more mature? Uh, well, no, it's uh, you know I tried to steer them a little bit farther away from that. I said, you know, we really don't want to be, uh, you don't want to be Led Zeppelin because you can't be Led Zeppelin. But uh, I mean. You have James Kotak in the band. Let him play the drums. You know, <laughs> you have one of the best rock drummers in L.A. playing yeah. in your band. So, you know, and, and it was, uh, Lenny was demanding as hell. You know, Lenny, yeah, I, I'm probably, you know, that he was, he's pretty demanding to the other members of the band. Yeah, well, I know the band is just him now, so. <laughs> yeah, I know. Because <laughs> that way he doesn't, he doesn't have to be demanding of anybody. <laughs> it's so hard to piss off yourself. There. <laughs> yeah, the, the other album I want to talk about that you did around that time is um, the Magnum album, Good Night L.A. Yeah. Um, and, of course, you know, you can probably tell I'm, I'm from Ireland, so, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm well-versed with uh, Magnum's music. They're, they're, you know, they're like meat and veg, potatoes, and, you know, they're salt-of-the-earth okay. English band. They and, really are, and and uh, I, you know, you're going to have to help me with names. The uh, leader of the band, uh, the, Tony Clarkin. What? Tony Clarkin, the guitarist. Tony? Bob yes. Bob Bob Catley is the singer. Yeah, uh, but t- Tony, what a great guy! I mean, he is so cool. You know, uh, I think he was just he had just become a grandfather, <laughs> and I said, "Wow, you started early." You know, and he just said, "Yeah, we do that over here." You know? <laughs> There's nothing better to do on a Friday night, <laughs> fighting, and you know what? <laughs> yeah, I, I just read a recent interview with him. Um, they've got a new record out, and they're, they're always asked about that album. That um, he always wrote all the songs himself, and for that record, he did the company got Jim Valance and Russ Ballard into write with him, and a lot of the, the fans back home. You know, they were like, they were thinking, hang on a second, you know, this is going to really change the sound. You know, and, and of course, they recorded abroad, I think, for the, in America for the first time. I thought that album turned out really well. Yeah, I really liked it. I liked it a lot. And um, I'm really happy that, uh, you know, and I was 
when they decided to name it Good Night LA, yeah, it was it was really funny uh, because Good Night LA. Uh, why we named the studio Good Night LA is because at the end of every concert in Los Angeles, every band says. Good night, L.A., we love you. <laughs> so I thought we'd get some mileage out of it, you know? <laughs> but uh, it was one of those things where uh, Tony and, uh, uh, you know, by using a song by Russ Ballard and uh, Jim Valens, you know, I had been using those guys, and I had done At the Third Stroke with, um, with Russ earlier, and he has so many good songs. And... Uh, and and I had uh, used uh, other songs by uh, Russ too. With uh, later in in my career with uh, with uh, Santana, and I used the Russ Bellow track. Yeah, do, do you remember there being any apprehension on their part for bringing in outside songwriters? Uh, I can't, I really can't remember. Okay. Um, uh, I was just thinking that well, we have a chance at having a couple of the really good writers in mm -hmm. the world. Yeah. You know, to uh, we can use some of their material. Let's let's try it. Yeah. You know, so they were really, uh, uh, they were uh, really quite open. Uh, you know, they they were open. Yeah. And I don't know if they've closed that door or not. I I haven't I haven't talked to Tony in kind twenty years. Mm -hmm. It's really been way too long. Yeah, they they broke up for a while and. They came back, I think, about like eight or nine years ago. They've they've just released a new studio album, so they're still out there. Yeah, well, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Gonna be old like me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the the other the other band, of course, you want to talk to you about is uh, Scorpions. Um, you did the Crazy yeah. World. You did the Crazy World album with them, and and I did uh, uh, the next one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then. Uh, part of another one yeah yeah now one of the things i thought was interesting with the scorpions that i know uh, that they were like so you know kind of related to dieter for for years and years and and i know well, when yes, you look at kind were. of her discography that there isn't like kind of a, a like a long-standing run like that of a, of a band typically with you so it was kind of a i think a unique thing for us to see that they went from dieter and then they went to you and then uniquely, they stayed with you for a few albums as well. And and do you have like any any insight as to why they they really like what you did with them? Well, let's see. Probably ten million album sales. Well, there's that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and a number one record in twenty two countries. Uh, uh, I guess that kind of helps. It does. Uh, yeah, I was a little convincer there. That that's the convincer. But that being said. Um, uh, you know, Klaus, <clears throat> Klaus, and uh, and Rudolph. Uh, you know, when uh, when we were working at Crazy World, we were having uh, issues with some drums. Mm -hmm. And you know, Herman the German played with this feel, and he didn't like playing to a click. He wanted to play all to feel. Mm. And at the time, Rudolph was. Uh, wanted everything to be, uh, you know, in the German, putting it a German way, on the spot, <laughs> on the point. It must be on the point. So, <laughs> and so uh, it got uh, very metronomic, and, you know, and Herman probably didn't like that as much. And but So when we uh, 
did some recuts and stuff, I brought in another drummer, and I played, and I went back and I had, uh, <laughs> I had James Kotak play on it. <laughs> <laughs> Funny, ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and they loved James Kotak because uh, they tour uh, Kingdom Come toured with the Scorpions before Crazy World. Uh, the Monsters of Rock tour, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, uh, the Monster Rock Tour Europe, um, that was, uh, oh God, the promoter, um, um, No, it was the, the Monsters of Rock Tour in the U.S. U.S., and also they toured in Europe. Oh, okay, that I didn't know. Uh, with Ozzy Hoppy was the promoter. Okay. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> and my brain, sorry. But, uh, it was, uh, it was a really good tour, uh, they, you know... Uh, the Scorpions actually, uh, you know, Matthias used to go out and watch Kotak because he couldn't, he just loved how he played. So when I suggested, hey, let me just try this couple of songs with with James, <laughs> the smile came over their faces. <laughs> and, you know, uh, and then after afterwards, you know, they, uh, they had Kurt Kress play with mm -hmm. them for a while. And then they broke down and uh, asked James to, to join their band. Mm, yeah. And uh, James has been in the band now for, what, 20 years? Yeah, give or take, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, now, is, is Rudolph the leader of that band, much like Mick Jones is the leader of uh, Foreigner? Um, it is uh, It is a democracy. Uh, it is uh, the Scorpions... At the time, uh, it was definitely a democracy. They would all discuss everything, every decision, all the time. Hmm. Today, it's probably not like that. It's probably uh, mostly Rudolph and uh, and Klaus. Mm -hmm. uh, Matthias is uh, likes to, you know, I don't think he wants to be uh, in any position of of uh, having to make any decisions. Uh, but, you know, there is, uh, except when it comes to tours, yes, or tours, no, I think. Uh, you know, I, I... Hey, Lennon, easy. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, that's the big dog. Of the, of the <laughs> I think he said the word tours too often, and he didn't like it. <laughs> yeah, no, he, there was... He sees somebody uh, outside on the... Uh, across the feet in the fields, and he wants to go out and play. So. <laughs> but uh, you know, no, it's um, when when I uh, when I was work, working with them on Crazy World album, uh, it was it was a democracy. Uh, and Francis was in the band then, so it was uh, it was really a, uh, everybody had a vote, so to speak, mm -hmm. and uh, which makes it. It makes it hard sometimes, you know, and then and to have all of them, and then to have a strong um, producer that has an opinion, <laughs> shall we say, uh, that can understand some German, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. just enough to get them in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, uh, but I'll tell you, you know, Klaus really that album 
was really a, a, a game changer for them. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm sorry that first single was Tease Me, Please Me, because that was not, that was uh, not any of our ideas. That was the record company going to the, the lowest common denominator, I think. Um, but, um, you know, when it came right down to it and they, uh, <clears throat> then they put out the, the ballots and, you know, send me an angel and, and, uh, um, win the change. Yeah. It's amazing. You know, that song became the anthem for the, uh, uh, for the end of the cold war. Mm-hmm tearing down of the wall, I mean, and the reunification of Germany. And, you know, I went to the wall concert, and when, before the wall concert, before the concert, here's a million Germans, a million, doing da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, before the concert started. <laughs> like, oh, my God, you know? So they... Yeah, they they really uh, claimed it as their own. Yeah, and you were part of that, Keith, so that must have made you put, a, put maybe uh, a was, tear in your eye. Yeah, it was pretty special. Yeah. And they, and they, uh, and Klaus and Rudolph are, uh, I've been, uh, I'm kind of, I guess I'm more friends with, uh, with Klaus. We, we keep in touch more than with Rudolph, but. Yeah. And uh, Matthias and I, every one, probably once a year, we we communicate back and forth. Yeah, it's it's been uh, you know, with so many bands, I try to keep in touch with as many as I can. Focus.
Yeah. No, 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 the, yeah. The, the Pure Instinct album, the Scorpions album the, that you did after that, you only did a couple of tracks on that. Was there any particular reason? I actually did, um, believe it or not, they recorded the album, they turned in the album, then I got the uh, and then they called me to do the album, uh, and then I went and they said, well, we got to do it in Rudolph's basement, and then we tried to do it in Rudolph's basement, then we went over to Vitzelord and, and uh, Amsterdam, and then ended up in doing some of the mixes at Vitzelord, and I had my parts, and their engineer co-producer had his parts. When it came time to mix, they wanted to mix with Irvin Musper. So Irvin Musper said, oh, this, these parts are cute. You know, they're no good. I want my parts. So they, uh, I just said, take my name off it. It's okay. I don't care if it's going to not, if you're not going to have my parts on it, then don't give me any credit for it. And their lawyer jumped at the chance, <laughs> taking my name off as much of that album as possible. Wow. <laughs> well, it was, we left on not good terms because uh, it's as if, you know, uh, the taste and the quality that was rejected by East West Records in the first place, then I went and fixed it, and then they had the same guy who did the record that got rejected, reject all my parts and put his back in. Mm. It just didn't make any sense. No, didn't. No, not at all. And, yeah, and that's, that's always the thing, right? You know, it's trying to make it right for the song. Yeah, and it didn't sell very well. Yeah, it didn't, um, it didn't sound like a, a, a traditional hard rock scorpion sounding album. There was a lot of ballads on it. and Of course. Yeah. They, didn't, they had all these ballads on it. And I, <laughs> I think I... Uh, at one time, I said, you know, uh, I have, someplace I have my notes. Uh, you know, I keep all this stuff. And and filed away in, under Scorpions, I have the notes I have when they, they called, they wanted, they were in New York. Uh, I was in New York, and they asked me to come over to their hotel room and talk to them. And they played me this record, and I took notes on all 12 songs, and then they said, well, it's been rejected by East-West, and I told them why. On every single song, I told them why. I said, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, you don't want to do this, you shouldn't do this, and but you can do this. And so they said, well, let's do that, and so we tried it, and then they wanted to hear it the old way, and that's how it came out. Mm. So... It really came out the way it was rejected the first time. Yeah, and weren't they pretty much in that mode at that point after the success of Wins and stuff, where it, the kind of the the power shift in the band kind of went more over to what Klaus wanted and some of the other stuff that like Herman was writing and bringing in, you know, all of that disappeared. Out of the band. Yeah, Herman was out of the band by then. Yeah, and so all the English lyric. Uh, see, remember Herman knows English, right? As he lived in England, in fact, he's living in England now. Yeah. And so he was pure, uh, truly bilingual, hmm. where, uh, where English was definitely a, a distant second for the rest of the guys. Right. 
why there's, uh, you know... You listen to the first few albums and there's some songs that really don't make sense on there. Oh, I know. Syntax <laughs> and sermons are... That's, that's what happens. You know, because there's... Uh, you know, it's like today German bands actually use Google Translate to write their lyrics. Mm. I'm serious. <laughs> I've, I've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've, I've talked to a lot of German bands, and that's and and some of them are, are pretty candid about how they get to English with what they're doing. Yeah. Well, you know, and you know, I got, I got to tell you, it's the hardest thing in the world because, you know, if you think about if you're going to say "cool" in English, well, that's "mega subaf and didn't go." Don't put that on the air because it's slang. <laughs> 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 but if it's an internet thing, you're okay. Yeah. But. Uh, you know that's you know it's it's impossible yeah uh, to to go between the two languages so you know if you don't dream in english you can't write in english there i said it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah somewhere over we'll, we'll be we'll be airing this and there's there's going to be a whole bunch of german metal fans are going to be screaming at the thing going schlich du schlich du so yeah, yeah well <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah well the mega soup off and kitten gal is Many or millions of uh, mega super super often monkey uh, tit and tit guile great <laughs> mega super often tit and guile is cool. Okay, that's that's what they you know it's like cool with it exclamation yeah. mark afterwards. Wow, yeah. that's really cool. That's, <laughs> oh, mega super often tit and guile. Yeah, <laughs> I can't. I don't understand. <laughs> But uh, there's, you know, uh, I'm sure you, you will be, uh, you know, talking to a lot of them. And, you know, it's, I got to hand it to them. If they get, if they get the lyrics right, wow, congratulations, because it's so opposite of their, of their language. Well, that's what I've asked. I've asked several of them is when they do the vocals, you actually, in, until you talk to them, you realize how little amount of English they can actually speak. And yet when they're singing, you know, it's one thing when you can barely understand Ozzy when he's talking, and then he can sing, and it's and you never put the two together. But when you've got someone who doesn't even speak English, but they can sing an English line with like amazingly perfect inflection and everything, it's, uh, to me it's mind blowing. Somebody's really helping them because usually the inflection, uh, they most of the time they sound like Count Dracula. <laughs> I love you. I want to love your blood. You know. <laughs> It's real, you know, but <laughs> that's usually what it is. So, yeah. You know, it kind of, English, at the most part, comes out comes out like Count Dracula, <laughs> and so, or Count Chocula, as the case may be. <laughs> <laughs> but I, that's what I, uh, so, you know, you just uh, have to stuff it. Uh, Klaus worked really, really hard to get uh, pronunciation, mm. really hard. And he only missed it on a couple of a couple of words, and uh, we worked really hard on those couple of words to get them right. One of them was angel, because uh, the Germans say angle. Right. Mm -hmm. Send me, send me an angle. What do you want? <laughs> I thought, please, triangle. What do you want? Forty-five oh, degree. <laughs> So anyway, yeah, Keith. Another another uh, guy I want to talk to you about is uh, George Lynch. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Scott would kill me if I never asked you about the Lynch mob <laughs> album you worked on because he's a super George Lynch fan. 
Um, of course, he's uh, regarded as a huge guitar hero. Did you have to rein him in at all, or was he no. always interested in the song first? Not at all. You just asked him not to bring the gun in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was uh, uh, the Lynch Mob album. They had just brought in Robert Mason mm. as their lead singer, yeah. and Robert was really intimidated, and he was having a hard time singing. And so I did something really silly. I called a buddy of mine, Glenn Hughes. And I said, Glenn, can you come out and just sing along with this kid to help him for a day or two? Well, he came out. They became friends. Uh, Glenn would sing the song. And you know how good Glenn sings. Holy crap. (laughs) <laughs> and then Robert would just slip into it, and then Glenn would help him with a few little lines here and there, and then Glenn would say, wow, you're singing that really good. And it bolstered his ego to the point where Robert Mason turned into a great singer. And then Robert, geez, you know, uh, went on to sing backgrounds for Ozzy on the road for how long? Yeah, that was a pretty, pretty darn long tour. Yeah. yeah, for a long time. Yeah. he was he was his background singer and just nailed you know, and it was and so he was the the other guy in Ozzy's band. It was and it was all because Glenn Hughes. Wow. So yeah. it was really cool. And that must make you feel pretty good knowing how far along that that Robert's you know gone in, in the ensuing well, years. Robert, as well, Robert, it was it was in him. He just he was intimidated. Yeah. So I had to find a way to get him to get get out of that. Uh, George is uh, George Lynch. He was hard to work with, 
because it had to be a lot. Uh, when it came to, you couldn't tell him or suggest anything in in his guitar play mm. because he's George Lynch, you know. Gee, and so <laughs> I would always uh, I would find different ways, uh, like. And I remember one day saying, hey, George, you know, yesterday when you were warming up, you played this line. It kind of went, you know, you could probably put that here in this song. And he goes, oh, yeah, I remember that. No, he never played that. That's the only way I could get it suggest anything. <laughs> so... As long as he claimed it as his, he would play it, and then it would go, go on. Um, it was, but the hardest part was when it came to writing credits. I mean, George maybe wrote twenty-five uh, percent of any of those songs, and he had to have fifty to seventy-five percent of all those songs. Mm. The writing credits are highly skewed in the wrong direction. And, you know, writing credits is publishing rights and writing rights. Mm -hmm. You know, the only thing that's really worth anything down the line. So, you know, you know, so there was, that was, uh, I got to tell you, that was quite a rough day in the studio. <laughs> the day that we all went into my back office at Goodnight LA and decided what percentage of the songs anybody was going to get. <laughs> it was really sick. I think they gave me 5% on two songs. Oh, uh, no. tang Tangled in the Web and one other one. And, you know, geez, my lyric, uh, that's virtually my lyric, you know, so. Yeah, that's uh, actually one of my favorite tracks on that album as well. I think that was, that, the, that was the first single, I think. Yeah. And, and they, yeah. Had a, they had a video for it, too. Yeah, they did. Yeah, yeah. Yep. But, but you're right. I mean, many many a band has has crumbled over over writing credits. Even got it. And that's know? that's the issue. It's always about writing credit because it's been pounded into everybody's head that never give up your writing or your publishing. Hmm. And so you're in this band. Everything's going along fine. You're making a shitload of money on the road, and then you're you're going to quibble about five or ten percent of a song uh writing and publishing credit and it breaks up the band yeah yeah i mean i think that was the beginning of the end for foreigner right was that over that one writing credit for, yeah was it you want to know what love is what i think it was, it was yeah it was there was a couple of tracks i think mick wanted to was the sole wanted to be yeah. the sole writer on it and, yeah, it was a similar thing and they were you know sat down after the album was done let's fit let's divvy out the credits and it was uh you know, I think they, I think Lou wanted a 50 50, yeah. and Mick wanted like a, like a 90 90 10, 10 or something. something and yeah. that was, that oh, well, was the beginning of the end. It was the end. Yeah. yeah. Because, uh, let's face it, Mick Jones is not really a lyric writer. Right. Lou is. I, I remember him sitting in that vocal booth at Atlantic uh, when we're cutting the track to Double Vision, and he's going da 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 as, as we're cutting the track. And then, uh, and then he's, and then all of a sudden, it's just uh, he just goes, sorry. <laughs> that was perfect then, timing, though. <laughs> it's, well, he does have time. He's Lennon, you know. Come on, Lennon. <laughs> Either John or you know the dictator is the same name. <laughs> you mean you mean Yoko? What? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Oh yeah, 
That's right. L-E-N-I-N. <laughs> L-E-N-I-N or L-E-N-N-O-N. I'm not sure which one. All I know is it's big, <laughs> as you can tell. Yeah. Big, and I, I don't want to take him off. <laughs> but um, there was, there's been so many things that uh, that have gone on. I've just lost my train of thought. But anyway, um, where were we? Uh, you're talking about uh, Lou Graham, Graham and Graham. Double Vision. Yeah, uh, Double Vision. So Lou was watching the Stanley Cup playoffs, and this uh, and this goalie he remembers, uh, and the Rangers were in the Stanley were in the playoffs. I mean, were and he had this little tiny TV, a little six inch TV that was about. 18 inches long and 16 inches square, and he had it in the vocal booth. He's watching the, this hockey game as, as we're cutting tracks, and, and he's got his pad of paper writing, writing down ideas and this, that, and the other thing. And all of a sudden, the, the goalie gets hit with the puck, and he goes down flat on his face on the ice, and the, they're pulling him off, <laughs> off the ice, and the announcer says, and that guy got really hit hard. He's going to have double vision. And Lou just stands up and he says, Clear my eyes, I got double vision. <laughs> so that song is about a hockey goalie. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it was, it was amazing. It just, and then from that point, he wrote the whole rest of the, the lyric in a matter of, of 10, 15 minutes. Wow. You know, when, when you talk about, you know, stories like that, and it kind of brings a question to mind of, you know, having worked with so many people over so many years and seen music kind of change over time. Do you do you feel that you still kind of have that same type of things that happen in the studio like that, or those kind of happy collaborations and things like that? Or do you think that people approach making music and albums a lot differently than they did in, say, you know, the late 70s, early 80s? Well, yeah, people... Uh, uh they don't get together. Mm. Uh, you know, music, uh, for instance, you know, the Lee Scalar? Yeah. Bass player. Yeah, hell of a bass player. <clears throat> yeah, I, I ran into him uh, at a NAMM show, and I, and, I, uh, and I asked him, I said, so, how you doing, man? He says, oh, yeah, I'm driving from bedroom to bedroom. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, bass player, male prostitute, right? <laughs> he said, no, 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 no. <clears throat> he said, Everybody has a bedroom studio. So I'm going from bedroom to bedroom doing bass parts. And, and, and it's right. That's what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I'm going from somebody's bedroom or somebody's home studio to somebody else's home studio in somebody's bedroom. And God, I've got my studio here uh, in my house. Uh, and the studio part is, guess what? A bedroom <laughs> is uh, on the other side of these two walls, and uh, <clears throat> so yeah, it's collaboration between an artist and maybe one musician is common, mm. but collaboration between uh, a whole band in the studio at one time, boy, uh, you know, doesn't happen that often. Yeah. On the Warrant record, I cut it. Uh, I cut it like that with uh, with uh, everybody in a room all at one time, yeah. and it was fun. We went to a studio and cut it all at once, and then <clears throat> and it was good. It was fun. It was 
live. Yeah. Stuff happens live. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I know it's, it is so different because I remember the the last you know CD that I had made with my original band that the guitar player that I work with to this day he will always say to everybody I hated doing that one because Scott made us do everything individual tracks and he was so much more comfortable playing with a band being able to see like my face see what I was going to do and and everything and he just and I know there's a lot of other people that always feel the same way that that they hate tracking single tracks but then there's other people now more so people that i work with that the only thing they know is tracking by themselves individually right well that's the way most records are done today Mm. so it is becoming normal and it's also becoming normal to uh, always play to a click and uh, only give one performance because don't worry uh they have melodyne and they have antares they have all these other programs that can uh, heal a bad performance. And yeah. so there's there's not that uh, that emphasis to, to get out there and really get good at what you do. Become an expert. Mm-hmm. Be, have that expertise before you get in the studio because, oh, don't worry, there's that other guy in that studio that really knows all those tools and he has a plug-in to fix this and a plug-in to fix that. I have to do it today. I was just doing it yesterday. And, you know, that's kind of, we have to do that because there's an entire generation of record buyers or music listeners, I should say, because nobody's buying records anymore, of music listeners that really don't care, Mm. that uh, really will... uh, they want it to be perfect or not at all. Yeah. And so, and they're really used to everything being clocked by a computer. Yeah. yeah. And what's even more bizarre is that if, if for any chance they plunk down money to see it live, they want to hear it perfect live too, which baffles me even further. Yeah. Well, hopefully, thank God, enough is, well, okay, well, they want to hear it perfect live. Well, a lot of times <laughs> they, they do hear it perfect live. Why? Because the, the people who are on stage are just playing tape, yeah. playing their computer. They hit the space bar, and all of a sudden they're doing their their gig. You know, so you know, and it's you know, there's I mean, even the vocals on a lot of a lot of performances are just they are real. Mm, yeah, you know, it, it drives me nuts, yeah. but. Every once in a while, you get to an artist that is so good today, and they will get through. They will get past all the stuff, and it's amazing how good some of these new artists are. Yeah, yeah. And then people hear them, and they they like, oh, geez, I kind of like this person. And they don't realize it's kind of that... It's that visceral connection to the imperfect part of it, that that liveness of it that's there, or even the the fact that you know the levels aren't all pushed up into red and then compressed like hell back down again. This I know they are, <laughs> they are. Trust me, they all every every mastered record that comes out is so overmodulated. That I can't must drive you crazy. It, even on what reissues the stuff that I did back in the. 80s and 90s, hmm. the reissue stuff is so hammered on the on the on the releases because 
they want to use all the bits in the in the iTunes codec. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They're going to use all the bits because it's that's the only way it's going to sound big. And then it comes out of a one-inch speaker on somebody's laptop, <laughs> and and that's and that's looking out to the large size. A lot of times, it's a lot less. Yeah. They're playing it on their iPhone, saying, yeah. "Oh yeah, man, this this song sounds great." <laughs> oh, okay, I'm so happy. I spent 150, 200 hours mixing it. <laughs> for it to be played on the little transducers inside the iPhone. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I got to ask you, Keith. Um, we had Bo Hill on the on on the show last year, and I asked yeah. him about all you producers when the music music industry was booming. Did you all have relationships? And he said that not really, because you were all highly competitive with each other. Would you agree with that? And that's bullshit. Okay. That's bullshit. Uh, Mike Clink and I are really good friends, always have been good friends. Uh, Ron Nevison and I have been friends for uh, forever. Uh, uh, Bo and I actually have done some records together. David Foster and I are good friends. Uh, you know, there's uh, all these all these guys, you know, it was kind of a club, and Bo didn't get in the club because he went back to tech. He went back to Texas too early. Yeah, he was out for a while, uh, messed around with Fiona for a while, uh, Fiona Flanagan, and then mm -hmm. left. Uh, so it was um, he wasn't there long enough to get in the club, and the club is really cool. You know, some people call it the Golden Years Club. <laughs> but it's it's really cool. It's Elliot Shiner and and you know and all these guys that are really good at what they do. Bob Clearmount and all these guys. They're all real good and they really like each other. Yeah. We get together and we talk. We appreciate each other. We and it was it's you know because. <laughs> we help each other remember the 80s <laughs> there said <laughs> it because a lot of us don't remember a lot of things that happened yeah so uh for one reason or another <laughs> i just got to ask you about one more album before before i leave you go keith um okay. the slip of the tongue album with white snake um adrian vandenberg didn't play on that and then they got steve Vai in now, you would have heard the original demos with Adrian playing. Were they vastly different to the finished product? Vastly different. Yeah, it was vastly different. Okay. Steve Vai is, uh, has tons of expertise, tons of technique. Everything was unique. Adrian Vandenberg uh, was, it was very normal. Every part was normal. Uh, see, they had him play it, uh, you know, we, he played originally on it, and it was his parts, uh, you know, could have been played by anybody. There was nothing special. Because remember, we were coming off of White Snake 87 mm -hmm. that had Sean uh, Sykes playing these stunningly cool parts that were unique. Every single one of them were great you know Amazing, i mean yeah. everyone and if we needed something different we had somebody else come in that played a really unique great part and then it came to slip of the tongue and it just uh it just wasn't good enough it was it really wasn't i'm sorry to say that but it was 
you know, he, he was hurting, and we didn't know why. Mm. And, you know, he had really bad carpal tunnel, and he had really injured his left uh, wrist. And so we didn't know that. He didn't want to say anything. And so he just played, and it wasn't good enough. And, and you know, we knew. Yeah. He, he knew, too. You know, he knew. So when it was so the record company, you know, once again, John Collager said, well, I'll get somebody. I'll get this person. You're going to have to pay him a shitload of money, but I'll, I'll get him. <laughs> and they got him. They got uh, Steve Vai, and they paid him a shitload of money. Mm-hmm. But wow, <laughs> it went from being all those tracks being normal to being stunning. Yeah, definitely a totally different, totally different player. And and at that point too, Steve Vai was still, you know, relatively new on the scene. I mean, some people knew him from Alcatraz or you know Zapper and things he, like that, but he was still pretty fresh. He, well, well, he did David Lee Roth in L.A. He yeah. was really well known. Yeah, he was, uh, you know the guitar god mm-hmm. he was one of the guitar gods and and you know in la that's he was looked on as the guy and you couldn't get any better than that guy yeah now kate was he the only name that was brought up oh yeah oh, it's, it's just steve <laughs> I and that was it oh yeah okay. i mean come on i know <laughs> oh oh you can get him okay <laughs> And uh, and it was one of those things where it's just really, it, it's, it was a special time. I'm glad I asked you about that album because I nearly forgot. <laughs> and he was great on the tour for it, too. Yeah. I saw him live on that. He was, yeah. He was really good on yeah. the tour. And yeah. Steve, yeah. Steve and I, uh, Steve has this, uh, Steve and I served uh, on the Grammy Board of Trustees together. Mm. And so we've been, you know, we've been close for quite a while okay oh, very good anyway i have um my artist calling from germany in about five minutes no, yeah no, no problem, it's, it's, it's been great to have you on been fantastic uh, i gotta tell you that you know a lot of times on the show the thing we get the most feedback on is when we have producers on we had mike frazier on we had a ton of feedback and people were you know really that's like we love hearing from producers and stuff so i'm sure that people are going to go just crazy when they uh they hear this with you all right. Well, thank you very much. Well, thanks right, for Keith. taking the time. We appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate it, Keith. Thanks for coming on. Okay, and uh, one last thing. When you want to talk to Mike Clink, uh, just call me. I'll forward on your uh, quest on to him. I, I talk to him all the time. Okay, okay. that'd, that'd be, be great. great. All right? All right. All right. Thanks, Keith. All right. Thanks, Keith. Cool. All right. Bye-bye right. now. Bye. Bye. There you go. The one and only Keith Olsen. Hope you guys like that one. And of course, as you just heard, we can probably expect to have Mike Klink on the show at some point. And of course, I'm sure that a big part of that conversation is going to be all about appetite for destruction. The roller coaster ride that is focused on metal continues on. Got some great guests already in the works for next week. We will swing back to interviews with a few artists. And beyond that, who knows? Got a lot of stuff kicking around and it is going to be another busy month here in June for Focus on Metal. And again, another reminder, if you haven't picked up Marty Friedman's Inferno, go out and get that one. And also, the day you're hearing this, if you're listening to us on internet radio, is the day that the brand new remasters of the first three Zep albums come out as well. I know we don't mention Zep as much on the show, but of course, they are a cornerstone. They don't like to be called heavy metal, but of course, you listen to stuff like the Immigrant Song, a lot of metal 
roots happening in that song. And those guys definitely did, if not as much promote all of the, you know, the metal stuff. They actually were very instrumental in putting together what we know today as the modern rock show with all the lighting and effects and all that good stuff. So even if you don't think of Zepp as being, you know, part of the metal family, you do have to hand it to them for letting us go in and have those huge spectacles. A lot of the stuff like what Dio had put on with all that, I don't think a lot of that would have happened without Peter Grant and Zeppelin pushing the envelope with what they did back in the 70s with their tours, their great stuff on 76, 77, just legendary tours that happened in those years. So like I said, first three Zepp albums remastered, come out in multiple formats. I know I've already got my stuff all pre-ordered. I did the deluxe editions with a you know remastered CD as well as a second CD of all kinds of rarities and stuff. Looking forward to it and throughout the rest of this year, they're supposed to be releasing them, I think like three at a time till they get them all out. So looking forward to all the Zepp catalog coming back at me this year. And of course, if any of you guys are Zeppelin fans out there, and if you don't have some of their catalog, this might be a good way to dive into that. And, you know, hey, the remastered deluxe ones, they're not bad at like 14 bucks a pop. Not too bad. You can get the single regular remastered CDs as well. And, of course, they got the big deluxe sets with the vinyl and the books and all that. I'm not springing for that one, but uh, definitely going to get the deluxe remastered edition. So you do yourself a favor. Go out and get that one. And as I keep mentioning, definitely go out and get Inferno. I got to say the reviews of this have been burning up the Twitter feed. Just like it seems like every, you know, minute and a half or so, I'm getting another message on Twitter about how great this release is coming from everybody. So I think Marty's definitely hit this one out of the park. So also, of course, this week, I got to say a big shout out to our buddy Bob Nalbandian. You guys all know Bob from the Couch of Metal podcast, from the Skull Sessions podcast, from Hard Radio. The guy has definitely been in the podcasting game for a long time. And of course, you can catch all of Bob's podcasts at the Cast Iron Ring. And if you don't know by now, that is at Cast Iron Ring. Com. We definitely consider ourselves lucky to call ourselves friends of Bob. And this week, Bob is doing a special screening of his brand new film that he's been working on. As if podcasting wasn't enough, yep, Bob is now a filmmaker as well. And this new documentary series is called Inside L.A. Metal. They're screening the pioneers of Los Angeles hard rock and metal 75 to 81 and uh, I'm sure that's going to be a very cool event. Bob was very kind to invite us to come out to L.A. and attend the screenings. However, even in the world of metal, sometimes family intrudes. And, of course, my youngest daughter's graduating high school. So I really can't say, hey, I'm going out to a screening for this and I can't attend your graduation. So uh, that, that wouldn't go over very well. So let's do a quick double check on that. So if I said I was going to go out to L.A. to attend a uh, screening instead of going to your graduation, would that go over very well? There you go. That was convenient, too. It's the first time she's actually been hanging out in the studio while I've been doing a mix down. So that worked out. But I want to say, Richie and I want to say a big congratulations. Shout out to Bob. And I know he's worked his ass off over even like the last two years on this. Interviewed a ton of people. If you want to get a little flavor of what I'm talking about, then go up onto YouTube and check out the official trailer. Just search for Inside LA Metal. That'll come up and you'll see a trailer of what Bob's been working on. And I definitely, when you see this, you guys are going to want to see the documentary. He's got some incredible interviews on this. Good stuff. It's only part one and part two of a whole series of stuff they're going to do. If you liked Metal Evolution, I think that this is going to be even better than that. And uh, so definitely, like I said, congratulations, Bob. You've worked your ass off on this. Wish I could be out there to see it. 
but I'm sure that it is going to be great. Looking forward to be able to have it in my hands and see it for myself. So we got to wrap this one up for this week. Of course, you know, everything you're listening to right now was done, you know, a few days ago and you know, we're pretty, pretty busy day today between mixing down the show and then later on tonight, Richie and I are supposed to head out to the release party for Ethan Broche for his latest release, Live the Dream. Of course, a lot of you remember Ethan, he was on the show with Michael Shanker and of course he opened for some of the U.S. dates for Shanker as well. Great guitarist and I think the day you're listening to this actually that uh, he is appearing in New York City in Drum Wars with Vinny and Carmine. So cool stuff, guys, really on the rise. But uh, yeah, on the day we're with the, where I'm actually mixing this down, Richie and I are supposed to head down to Boston and uh, we're supposed to be his guest at his CD release party. We are hoping that next week we're able to bring you some audio. We are scheduled to talk to him before he hits the stage. So hopefully Ethan will have some cool stuff to talk about. That will be a wrap for me, for Richie and myself and everybody here at Focus on Metal. This is Scott Thompson saying have yourselves a good metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, remember. Focus on Metal. Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.